Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future. I'm joined today by my friend, Ambassador Richard Bernal. Ambassador Bernal was Jamaican ambassador of the United States from 1991 to 2001. He's also a senior advisor at CSIS. He has an extensive career as a professional economist, professor, uh, and someone with significant experience in trade policy and trade negotiations. He's written a series of very interesting books, Ambassador Brown has published over 100 scholarly articles in addition to his books. His most recent book, which what we're going to talk about, is titled Corporate Versus National Interest in U.S. Trade Policy, Chiquita and Caribbean Bananas. It's not a book to read by the beach. Maybe it is a book to read by the beach, Ambassador Bernal, but it's a very well-researched, very detailed book. And it's about how the multinational firm Chiquita convinced the Clinton administration to engage in a trade war with the European Union over a product not even produced in the United States. It's a very interesting book and looks at the political economy of trade and trade negotiations, but also the real impacts of these negotiations on countries such as Jamaica and in the Caribbean and and the long-term impacts as well. I think it's a fascinating book, and we're happy to have you here, Ambassador Bernal. Thank you for joining us today. So I always ask people when I talk about a book, and I'd like to try and repeat the title, Ambassador Bernal, Corporate versus National Interest in U.S. Trade Policy, Chiquita and Caribbean Bananas. Why did you write this book? Well, first of all, let me thank you for providing this opportunity. And let me say it might not be a book to read at the beach, but it's certainly a book you could read while eating some ripe bananas. I wrote this book because I was involved in the whole process. I was based in Washington and a lot of the action was in Washington between USTR, Congress and the Caribbean governments and by extension, Latin American and Central American governments who had a vested interest in the trade. I was disturbed because I felt that the outcome reflected corporate interests at the expense of U.S. national interests, particularly security interests. And why I argue that is these very small countries export one crop, and that crop was bananas. And it went to Europe under special arrangements because the average banana farmer has one acre or less. So they can't compete with efficient plantations in Central America and Latin America. And the Caribbean had about 1% of the world market. So I felt that this is an occasion on which the criteria of free trade could have made allowances for very small producers in the same way that in the U.S. there are special measures for small business and so on that they allowed to be in the market because 1% of the global market doesn't make any difference to other producers and certainly didn't make any difference to Chiquita. So I felt that U.S. policy was driven by corporate interests rather than a more enlightened national security interests of the U.S. and the Caribbean. What's the main takeaway you want people to take away from this book, Ambassador? 
The main takeaway I want from this book is that US national interest must weigh a range of stakeholders as well as foreign governments and how important they are to US interests overseas. In this case, Chiquita was able to succeed in having the US engage at the WTO and with the EU in a trade war over a product that's not even produced in the United States. It's actually only traded by Chiquita. And the irony is that eventually the Caribbean lost that 1% of the global market, which was in the EU. And Chiquita was able to garner that share with the Latin American producers. But it did not help Chiquita's corporate interests because some years later, they declared bankruptcy and the firm has been sold to a Brazilian fruit company. So the 1%, this whole big fight with Europe really was a waste of time and resources to have the EU and the US, the two biggest trading blocks at the time, going into battle with tariffs and so on over bananas, which was so not produced in the US. I think the lesson I want to take away here is that, as you know, US policy reflects many stakeholder interests and the job of the US government is to reconcile those and come up with a overall policy in the national interest. I felt in this case, a disproportionate amount of attention was given to Chiquita's corporate interests. There's a history in the Caribbean of bananas and you talk about that to kind of set the stage for this. Talk about yes. the history of bananas in the Caribbean. Talk about the specific dispute. And then I think there's a significant aftermath that I would argue we're still kind of living with that sort of has all sorts of repercussions in various ways beyond the banana dispute in terms of the U.S. relations with the Caribbean and the impacts that it's had. There are two questions there. Let me deal with the first one, which is that Jamaica was the largest producer of bananas in the world in 1930. Panama disease destroyed the industry and the industry moved to Central America. The 1930s was a devastating period in the Caribbean because of the Great Depression and then followed by the Second World War. The United Kingdom decided to find some way of aiding the very small countries of the Eastern Caribbean. And the mechanism they found was bananas. They would buy bananas, a guaranteed quota, at a price above world market prices because these small one-acre farms couldn't produce competitively. It was known from the start that for a couple pennies or shillings using sterling, the consumer in the United Kingdom would happily pay a slightly higher price than they would for world market price bananas. But it was so insignificant, it wouldn't cause a problem. And that would allow this to be an aid mechanism to these very small countries in that the money was paid on a weekly basis for the purchase of bananas. It went directly to the small farmers. This is one of the great virtues of this aid mechanism. It wasn't filtered through government. It had, wasn't handled by government. 
went straight to the farmers and was a wonderful direct means of aiding these small farmers. Bananas dominated the exports of countries like St. Lucia, Dominica, and Grenada, and St. Vincent. And when those were put in jeopardy, the whole economy was destabilized. Now you asked about what was the aftermath of this? Because these economies lost the dominant export sector and the main source of employment and uh, main, main industry and main source of foreign exchange with all the attendant other benefits of tax revenue, etc. These very small economies, and I'm making a distinction between them and Jamaica. It was important in Jamaica, but in the very small Eastern Caribbean, it was life and death. When that was removed, a number of people who were earning a living from bananas couldn't find an alternative crop, and therefore unemployment went up. The economic situation was such that it made these islands vulnerable to transnational crime emanating from narcotic smuggling. As you know, the Caribbean is one of the conduits for drugs from Latin America going into the southern United States. So once that happened, the country became vulnerable to transnational crime, money laundering, etc. That, in turn, would destabilize these societies and make them less good as trading partners for the U.S. and raise security issues for the U.S. in terms of drug smuggling, crime, etc. So, Ambassador, you referenced that it also generated perhaps some anti-American feeling on the Caribbean islands. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, uh, that has been expressed many times during the whole process, and this went on over many years. And subsequently, the feeling in the Eastern Caribbean, it was expressed by trade ministers, prime ministers, etc. The feeling was that for such a small share of the market, the U.S. in its broader foreign policy and national security interests could afford this exception to the free trade principles and that it would not seriously affect Latin and Central American producers, nor would it make much of a difference to the fruit companies of Chiquita and Dole. Interestingly, Dole never joined Chiquita in this endeavor to change the policy. Dole was able to carry on its banana trade globally without seeking to get this small part of the market. And Chiquita could have followed that same approach. What was the business rationale behind why Chiquita was so aggressively pushing this policy? Well, in their corporate interest, they wanted to, one, enlarge their share of global trade of bananas. Two, they could a larger share of the European and UK market. And three, bananas that they could source from Central America and Latin America would be cheaper than those from the Caribbean, and therefore it could increase the profit margins on banana sales. So for all of those reasons, Chiquita felt gaining an additional share of the market would be good for their corporate profitability. But as you said, paradoxically, 
they won the battle but lost the banana war. Is that a fair statement, Ambassador Bernal? Well, they won the battle, although it didn't save the Chiquita Corporation, but the U.S. lost the battle. That's the difference between corporate interests and national interests. And I understand that as the stakeholders contend for influencing U.S. trade policy, that corporations, because of their resources, are able to exert a considerable interest. In this case, I would say a disproportionate interest. This fight happened when, in the 90s? This started in the 90s and it went on for a long time. It was not formally resolved in the WTO because the case was taken to the WTO. The WTO made some rulings asking the EU to adjust the regime. There were attempts to find compromise regimes and that went on for a long time. And eventually, after about 10 years, the matter was settled definitively in the WTO. Dispute settlement process is not the fastest process in the world. And also, when a decision is made, the implementation is up to the party who has been ruled against. And often they take time to do that. And the only sanctions that can be imposed on them to force them to do it was the action of the party that was awarded the dispute. Now, for the Europeans, this was a lovely working mechanism of aid to their former colonies, particularly small Caribbean countries, but also to African and Pacific producers. And uh, the Europeans felt that this is something that they could afford and that it was working well. And it was such a small share of the market that the U.S. could take an approach of live and let live. Now, I must say that the Central American and Latin producers had an overlap of interest with Chiquita. They also wanted a larger share of the global market. So Ecuador, Colombia, and Central American countries yes. that produce bananas were like, the Eastern Caribbean shouldn't have this special arrangement with the Europeans. And so they made yeah. common cause with Chiquita. So it wasn't just the U.S. and Chiquita, but there were these other interests that were aligned. Yes. But the yes. argument you would make is this is such a small percentage of the share. And if these folks aren't doing bananas, you're going to create destabilization on these islands. And there are some other interests that the U.S. needs to keep in mind. Could you talk about that when you raise this either with the anti-drug folks, what's called INL, the State Department, or with the main State Department? who have to think about these issues or the folks at USAID who in theory have to think about these issues or even the intelligence community that has to think about yes. these issues. Yeah. I'm assuming ambassador, they at least heard that and were at least cognizant of that. But ultimately this was really a USTR decision at the time that USTR led this. And so these other agencies didn't really have a voice at the table on this topic. We have made a good summary of the, the book and your question relates to why did the trade interest prevail over a wider notion of U.S. interest? And it's easy to argue. This was first posed as a trade issue. Most people, even in policy circles, don't follow much trade because it's very technical and legalistic and they just don't get into it. Secondly, unfortunately, bananas elicits humor. When you say, you know, banana war, people start laughing, you know, banana war, 
I mean, is this serious? And they start talking about banana republics. So it's not it seen as a posed, serious product. It was posed as a trade issue when, in fact, what I'm arguing is that it's a foreign policy and uh, national security. If it was a, a product that accounted for five or 10% of exports, you'd say, oh, no big deal. But sometimes it was 70, 80% of the exports of these very small countries. So it never got the traction it should in foreign policy. State Department was very empathetic, but it was a USTR issue with treasury in support. Eventually, at one stage, I suggested to my colleague ambassadors in Washington, I said, you know something, we are posing this wrongly. This is not a trade issue, it's a national security issue. And we switched strategy and we got a lot of support in the national security community. Yeah. But jurisdiction-wide, it's a trade issue and it's a USTR issue. Also, we have to remember that sometimes national pride, hubris, etc., comes into trade agreements. The U.S. was like, why should we back down from the EU and the U.S.? And the EU was like, this is our business. Why should we kowtow to the United States? We want to do this. We are sovereign. So it became a wider trade issue, much bigger than it should have been with both sides putting tariffs on each other, others' goods. It really got entirely out of proportion for the EU and the U.S. The banana conflict led to sort of a larger trade conflict where they started slapping tariffs on things unrelated to bananas because the folks negotiating the trade agreement were in both invested on sort of winning the trade dispute. Is that correct? You put it very well. Winning. If you have a rival in trade issues, a rival who you sometimes cooperate with and at other times you are an opponent of them. You don't want to lose on any issue, including bananas. So a sort of national pride entered into this where he said, no, I'm not going to let the EU tell the US what they should do. And the EU at the same time said, this is our business. The US can't tell us what to do. Eventually it was sorted out in the WTO after about 10 years. But a lot of resources in time and money and technical arguments was devoted to this issue, which life and death for the Caribbean, but should never have reached that proportion between the US and EU. Ambassador, were there some Caribbean countries that recognized mainland China after this in the Eastern Caribbean after this? And did this dispute contribute to that? Well, once the earnings from bananas declined, the importance of getting financial assistance, development aid became more important. It was at the same time that the US had been winding down its financial aid and investing more in counter-narcotics. The Caribbean argued that the only real security means is economic development, but the US continued to invest in counter-narcotics and transnational crime. Now, the problem with that is that these countries needed resources. It was at the same time that China, some years later, began to raise its profile in the Caribbean because it competes with Taiwan for diplomatic recognition. There are still countries in the Caribbean that recognize Taiwan. 
China is determined to eliminate that because Taiwan's claim to be an independent national country rests on the fact that a number of countries are still recognize them as the government of not only Taiwan, but of China. So China began to put more aid into the region after this because a kind of development aid fatigue developed in the US and they looked at Eastern Caribbean and said, look at your per capita income, it's high. And look at the per capita income of some of the Latin and Central American countries much lower. But as you know, per capita income is a dull analytic tool for assessing economic development. So that was pretty much the picture. It created a kind of need, a vacuum for development finance, just at the time China was beginning to assert itself and to compete vigorously with Taiwan. Because most of the countries that recognize Taiwan are small island states in the Pacific and the Caribbean. It's true. So Ambassador, I read this book and I thought, oh my gosh, I'd like to believe this was done in the post-Cold War context where free market trade regimes dominated a lot of thinking in the early to mid-90s. Some of that has changed, but also sort of we're looking at everything now through a competition with mainland China lens. I'd like to believe, but I could be sadly wrong, that we, the United States, wouldn't do something like this again, because I look at this and I... After reading your book, I say I'm sympathetic to the argument that you've put on the table. Is the United States capable of making the same mistake again, or are we in a different age now? I don't want to be critical of the United States, but I recognize that the way in which they have approached the Caribbean has been episodic. Only when there is a crisis or a perception of a possible crisis, like refugees from Haiti, Cuban example in the Caribbean, do they respond? The small island developing states are middle-income countries, so they look like they're well off. The difference is their per capita income is good, but their economies are very vulnerable because they're undiversified. Tourism replaced bananas, but it's still a monosectoral economy in which one thing like the COVID crisis can destroy not only an industry, but a whole economy. Now, in regard to China, the US has seen the competition and rivalry with China as one where they need to respond in all arenas. They are not responding in the way that China is asserting itself. China is asserting itself by development aid, and it is funding projects that these countries desperate to need because they have a vast infrastructure deficit. When China offers to build a hospital or lends a country enough money to build a stadium or something, that creates a tremendous amount of goodwill. And I've said to the US many, many times, why don't you compete? If you see the Chinese building a lot of these important infrastructure and construction projects, I say, why don't you step up provide some competitive financing through your Exim Bank, et cetera, get your firms to compete. Right now you're, you are ceding it to the Chinese and it builds a lot of goodwill. You notice recently the government of St. Lucia, about a week ago, a new government came in. And the first thing they said is we are 
reversing our policy where we were very close to the U.S. They didn't spell that out, but they said, we are now going to work much more closely with Venezuela. Why? During the time of high oil prices, Venezuela helped the Caribbean. And therefore, you see, when the U.S. is complacent about the region, other players become influential. And I think the U.S. needs to pay more attention to that competition. Ambassador, this is really great. I really appreciate the time. So the title of the book is Corporate versus National Interest in U.S. Trade Policy, Chiquita and the Caribbean Bananas by Ambassador Richard Bernal. It's published by Paul Grave. Uh, I've read the book, very well-researched, very interesting book, very important case study written by a serious scholar. Ambassador Bernal, thanks for the time today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Anytime, Ambassador Bernal. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 